Tonight's reading is going to be a continuation that we started last week, where I'm going to be taking passages uh, that are attributed to the Buddha Shakyamuni in some of the ancient uh, scriptures, or we call them sutras, uh, that record his teachings. Uh, as I said last week at the preface, we are not a people of the book, we are a people of the practice. So these words and, and the different uh, writings that we have available to us, which are manifold, uh, they're there to support our practice. So here is a reading from one of the sutras that can be found in the Pali Canon and also in the Agama scriptures. He abused me. He beat me. He defeated me. He robbed me. And those who do not harbor such thoughts, hatred will cease. For hatred does not cease by hatred at any time. Hatred ceases by love. This is an ancient wisdom. Now, some of you may recognize that passage because I've taught on that before. Of course, you know, when you've been doing it as long as I have, you've usually taught on one thing or another. And I like this passage particularly because, <clears throat> excuse me, it's one of the more difficult ones. Because what the Buddha seems to be implying is, is if that I, if I think that someone's hurt Someone's, you know, tried to, you know, someone's abused me, someone's cheated me, someone's beaten me, etc. That the way to move beyond that suffering and into nirvana is to cease holding up those thoughts. And then, of course, the, the coda of it is, and it's a famous passage that gets, you know, variations of it spread around, which is that hatred never ceases by hatred, it only ceases by love. And there's a lot of ways that one might go into this particular reading, but the one I wanted to do tonight deals with something that I think is very important. And I'm going to talk about the idea of justice and judgment. Because a lot of times, if we're the person on the receiving end of this type of abuse, we want to have justice. And justice is a word that is used a lot today. And I don't think often that people think very much about the word justice, and so they, they have various and diverse meanings attached to it. I always try to be very mindful of the words that I use and really understand the root and source of the words so that I might give them their complete meaning. So let's look at the word justice and judge. And again, I'm using this in the context that if someone was wrong, they would say that I want justice. You wronged me, so I want justice against you. So when we look at the origin of the word and its, its, its oldest uses, there, there are two. Um, the word 
as we use it in English, both comes from a Latin root. And that Latin uh, root term is juice, or juice. And the meaning of that could be right or correct. And the other meaning of it could be law. And I think that the way in which we use that term today, I think the legal reference makes the most sense. Because then when you look at the way it was used in, let's say, like the Semitic languages of, of Jewish history, it refers, so let's, let's look at that for a moment. The word judge, which is related to the word justice, and you might say that the word justice is the thing that the judge is upholding, the law. And in Jewish history, a judge refers to a war leader, a war leader vested with temporary power. And you find this uh, most prevalent in like the book of Judges that you would find in the canonical Hebrew scriptures. Likewise, the meaning in English of, of justice or one who carries out justice being a judge is right order, equity, the rewarding to everyone that which is his due. The rewarding to everyone that which is his due. And also the infliction of punishment and legal vengeance. And then in the old French word use of this, it became widespread to mean vindication of the right a court of justice or judge. So as we can see here, these words are intimately uh, connected to each other. All right, so there's our, our background. And I think it's very interesting that when we look at it, it means to reward a person what they're due. And that there is the idea inherent in the very root of these words that it's the infliction of punishment or legal vengeance. So what that does is pretty much makes it pretty clear that the idea of justice and judging is all about giving people what they're due. And that's not necessarily in a good way. <laughs> now I know we can expand on those words and give them different meanings, but I think by going back to the source, we know where they come from and what they really meant. So there are three ways that this can be understood from a spiritual perspective. Because I don't really have time tonight to go into the legal aspects of it or to unpack some of the more popular pedestrian idioms that are used today. But I want to talk about the spiritual part of it. So the first spiritual meaning, spiritual meaning A, let's say, is that we are all under the law. And therefore, we are all judged as guilty. Now, this teaching is something that you will find in both the East and the West in different spiritual traditions. In the West, the probably the best version we have is the Jewish version, which was inherited then and passed down through the Judeo-Christian tradition. And it's the idea that the law, which was set up by God, 
is, is a law that all are judged or deemed guilty by. No one is outside the law and no one has kept the law perfectly. And that leads you to uh, a practice in, in those spiritual traditions of what we might call grace. Which means that while we are guilty under the law, because the law would require perfection, quite frankly, therefore there is also the teaching of grace so that we live not by the law, but we live by grace. And of course, in the Christian tradition, we know this as the substitutionary atonement of Christ and the forgiving of sins and that aspect of grace. In the Eastern tradition, there's something very similar, and it was the idea that because of karma, understood in a certain way, somewhat different from Buddhism. In Buddhism, karma is really pretty much cause and effect. But in other Eastern traditions, karma was understood to be almost a retribution, uh, a sort of balancing of the scales. And so there was very much the sense that no one escapes their karma. <laughs> and so in some sense, somewhere along the line, you had transgressed the law. And so therefore, uh, like Lenin once said, instant karma is going to get you. So there was this sense that karma was very similar and that there was this system of legality and because of karma, we had transgressed it. Therefore, we were also under the law. Likewise, though, the Eastern traditions have a sense of grace. And I want to now kind of go specifically to Buddhism. In some forms of Buddhism, you will find that there's very much an emphasis on the idea of what we might call the precepts or, you know, the idea of, of right and wrong. And these versions of right and wrong that you find in Buddhism, the five precepts, are pretty much the five universals that you would find among all people, like don't commit murder, don't take from others, don't lie, etc. However, it was always very clear that those precepts were not laws. In other words, even if one transgresses, let's say, right, one of those precepts, there isn't anyone who's going to judge you in Buddhism. And in fact, Buddhism would go further to say that the keeping of the precepts is a good practice because it helps cut down on the consequences of negative conditions. And that's how we use it in the four directions system of mindfulness. But what it's saying is, is that we all are Buddha nature. Some would say have Buddha nature. But the teaching of the Buddha is that we are all Buddha nature. So therefore, there's an inherent grace. And by that I mean, using Western language, we're already saved. In other words, there is a grace 
that permeates all things. And so therefore, I don't have to do anything to try to gain Buddha nature. I am Buddha nature. That grace is inherent. Now there was a, a popular tradition, which is part of our root traditions in the Japanese form of Buddhism, and that was called Shinbu. And there was a very uh, famous teacher by the name of Shinran, who during the early medieval period in Japan, began to teach this radical gospel of grace. And he was only really emphasizing something that had always been in the teachings. But up to that time, Buddhists had kind of gotten legalistic. Uh, so much so that they felt like, well, you know, I could never get enlightened in this life, so the best thing I can do is hope for a happy rebirth. Which is really strange, because having a happy rebirth was never really part of original Buddhism. But it was this legalism that started to get laid on to Buddhist practices, and Shinran's great gift was, you know, rebelling against that, that tide and saying, no, um, you don't have to do anything to become Buddha. You are Buddha. And this was symbolized by the Buddha Amida. So in his day, just like people today ask, well, if I'm already Buddha, why do I have to practice? Or if I'm already Buddha, does it matter what I do? Now, in a Western sense, it would be, if I'm saved, right, if the grace that uh, the deity has bestowed upon me is something I already am experiencing, in a radical sense, I could say I'm already forgiven. Even before I ask forgiveness, I'm forgiven. And that was called universalism in Christian theology which Paul uh, seemed to indicate in his writings. So what does that mean? So the question that comes up, whether you're a Buddhist teacher and you're teaching this, and they'll say, well, does it matter if I practice or not? Or if you're, let's say, a Christian, and someone says, well, if I'm already saved, then does it matter? If, can I go back out and sin? Does that matter? And people struggle with this, but the ultimate answer is, using the Western language, sure. If you want to, uh, after you recognize that you're already saved, you want to go out and sit again, go ahead. It won't change that. In other words, there's no sin you can commit which will take away your salvation in that Western tradition. And that's the way I was raised in the Christian faith. Likewise in Buddhism, once you realize oneness, and then you'd say to yourself, well, I can go out and keep acting as if I'm separate, even though I recognize that I'm already one. A Buddhist teacher would have to say the same thing. Sure. If you want to go out and practice like you're still separate, go ahead. I remember someone asking me this question one time when my son was very little. And I was trying to give him an analogy that might make, make it more simple. And I said, imagine my son asked me this question as he stands over the sink, hand poised above the food dispenser. 
you know, the thing you drop down, food in, grinds it all up. The what? The disposal. Yeah. And imagine my son standing there. This is what I told the guy. And he looks at me and says, Daddy, you say you love me, right? Yes, son, I love you. You say that regardless of anything I'm ever going to do, you would still love me. And I say, yes, I would still love you. And he, let's say he said to me, well, Dad, if I stick my hand in this disposal, will you still love me? Yes. If he were to stick his hand, metaphorically, into that hand disposal, grind up his hand, yes, my love for him would not change. I might think he was pretty stupid or silly, and I would be the first one to wrap his hand up, or what was left of it, and rush into the hospital. But I would never stop loving him. So that's the point. The point is that when you realize that you're embraced by this boundless compassion, what we call the true self, the Buddha nature, or whatever language you want to use, there is no place we can go where that grace is not already about. And so, to the Westerner, the Christian, they could say, yep, yeah, I'm going out and sit again. Does that mean that their God who has forgiven them will stop loving them? No. It just means it's going to create a lot of pain and suffering. Just like in the analogy with my young son. He stuck his hand in the disposal. So, likewise, it's not that we can't go out and do other things or do anything we want to, really, once we wake up to oneness. It's just that what we realize is that if we keep doing certain things, if we keep doing things from a place of sense of separation or from a lack of clarity, then we're just going to create more suffering for ourselves. And that's something that's important to understand. That even if I awaken to my true nature, I awaken to the oneness of all life, if I'm not living out of it, I'm going to suffer. Because that suffering is caused by the same sequence it always has been. So that's why, even when I recognize that I'm already Buddha nature, that I practice. Because I know, even though I have that awareness and that understanding, I can still go out and act out of conditioning that may not be clear. And if I'm not practicing daily, not practicing regularly the way of mindful living, then it'd be pretty easy for them to fall into. But I also know this, that if I make a mistake, if, if I do something out of some negative condition, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. I'm still saved. I'm still There's a line that I used one time in a talk that some people found very difficult. And I said, love is stronger than justice. Today, we are always talking about the word justice. But the problem is, as you saw from the definitions, 
that that word often is what divides us. What you think is just, I may think is unjust. And so we, we struggle in this dualistic dance, which just creates more and more suffering. And of course, we all want things to be fair. But life isn't fair. And no matter how hard we try, no matter what machinations we employ, we're never going to be completely equal. You might be smarter than me. You might be a lot more better looking than me. You might have advantages physically that I don't have. Or vice versa. I can't change that. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't make an effort to try to keep things as on fair ground as we can. But if we keep talking about these words in ways that are divisive, that's why I love that saying at the end. For me, love is stronger than justice. Justice in the end is the pursuit of something that I think is like perfection. It will never really exist. But love, I believe that love is stronger because even when I am treated unjustly. I can still love. Even when you are untreated unjustly, you can still love. And according to all the wisdom of all the sages of our race, of our species, love is the only thing why love is stronger than justice and love is stronger than hatred. Now, saying that and doing it can be two different things. And I will say this as a form of grace. If you have not awakened to your true self, if you have not taken refuge if you're not practicing daily orienting yourself from your true nature, this is virtually impossible to do. This kind of liberation, this boundless love, is only possible when we are connected and in communion on a daily basis with the source of our being, the source our creativity, the source of our connectedness, and the source of our compassion. If we're not connected to that mindfully on a daily basis, then we fall back into the end. The good news is that anyone can do it. And all it takes is that first step. That first step where you change your orientation. You take refuge in that beautiful unity. 